Bob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Jeff Shiver and Michelle Ledette Henley to take a deep dive into culture. We talk about what culture is, we talk about culture change strategies, and we talk about how to engage your people in maintenance and reliability initiatives. Please, please, please go to robsreliability.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter with bonus content. I have some awesome stuff coming in the next little while here, and I hope that if you that you hope I hope you join me. And if you sign up for those, you'll be the earliest notified for that. Also, if you like the show, please tell your colleagues about it. Rob's Reliability Project has been growing. And I just want to thank you for sharing the show because it means a lot to me. And it means a lot to me that we're promoting the word of great leadership, great reliability. And together, we're going to change the world. So thanks for listening. I hope you and your family are doing great. And here's the interview with Jeff Shiver and Michelle Henley. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Today, we have two special guests. We always have special guests, but we have two special guests today. We have Jeff Shiver from People and Processes. Jeff, how are you? Doing fantastic, and thanks for having me. Thanks I'm for looking joining us, to- Jeff. Yeah, no, I absolutely. It's been a long time. I haven't had you on, and, and Tammy reached out, and we finally got a date to work, so it'll be good. <laughs> yes. And we have Michelle Henley from The Manufacturing Game. Michelle, how are you? Hey, doing good, Rob. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for joining us. And, and you know, you're coming on next week, too, to talk defect elimination, so that'll be fun. Yeah, looking forward to that with George uh, Mahoney. Yeah, should be, it should be a good one. It's actually funny because I, another thing that I had never gotten to were 110 episodes or something into the podcast now, and defect elimination was just another one of those things we never got to. So it's a long time Perfect. coming. Perfect timing. <laughs> That's right. So I wanted to have you guys on today to talk a little bit about culture, um, just to get really more into it. Like we, we've talked culture and we always talk culture and reliability. And, and what I see as someone who's been out there a lot is we all have the technical expertise for the most part. You know, we have all the authors, both of you guys are experts. A lot of people on this call are experts in their own field as well. And we still lack to have those fundamental results or the results that we should get. And so I guess I wanted to just start off today, like maybe can we talk a little bit about like what is culture versus like what are habits or what is just like our plant performance? Like Michelle, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I, I kind of see culture as being the, the overall system. So it includes the assumptions we have in the organization, the values we have, the beliefs we have, the things that drive the behaviors of the employees. And so I look at behaviors as kind of a subset of the organizational culture as a whole. And then if, if you're talking about habits, I would say that's even another subset. So a habit is a behavior that we've done so many times that it's become part of our sort of subconscious. So we don't have to think about doing it. Uh, we can just kind of do it on, on autopilot. 
And I think, you know, when you look at it that way, there's no really right organizational culture or wrong organizational culture. The key is, is it aligned with the goals of the organization? So I, I had a situation with this uh, recently with an eye doctor. So my eye doctor passed away and I had to find a new one. And so there was one that was recommended to me. So I go in for my normal checkup and get my glasses adjusted and all that. And they are just amazingly efficient. So you're in, you're out. They take you from room to room and this person does this and this person does that for annual checkup and, and getting your glasses done. Perfect. But then I had some problems with my eyes and I went in to see what was going on. And it was the same deal. It was this sort of almost assembly line and you'd have to kind of grab people to, to get a chance to talk to them. And that was really frustrating from a, a diagnostic standpoint. So there, their culture was set for sort of the routine type stuff, but it really wasn't a very good organizational culture for, for diagnostic work. Love it, love it. Now, Jeff, what have you seen out there with respect to culture? Well, I think, you know, when we talk about culture, culture overall is really hard to change. And, and you know, and, and I think most people would agree. And, you know, I've always heard numbers like three to five years to change the culture. And most people don't have the bandwidth to do it. You know, most executives, for example, don't have the bandwidth to do it. And I think the challenge in some organizations, absolutely, do we need to change the culture? In some cases, yes. In some cases, maybe not so much. If I go back to when I was a practitioner, you know, in, in the last plant that I was a practitioner in, we went through all the changes. And, but would I want to change the culture? No. The culture was great. Would I want to change the habits and ultimately the behaviors that would drive a better culture potentially? Sure. So I, th I think, you know, when we talk about culture, we have to be careful because some organizations have a really great culture, you know, but that doesn't mean they're executed well. Like you said, Michelle, you know, here we, we're set up for an assembly line process. You know, you come in, you get your glasses and, you know, that whole process works seamlessly. But yet when you throw a curveball in and, okay, now I need a diagnostics piece and, and I need you to spend more time with me, we're not set up for that, you know, because we're so ingrained in the habits and the behaviors that, you know, so it points to what you said. But, yeah, I think the focus really is is how, you know, as you mentioned, culture is clearly the behaviors and, and the actions of the organization. And it's reinforced by leadership, you know, so uh, it's a key piece there as well. You know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you touched on it, Jeff, as leadership to me is something that I've seen is one of the biggest barriers that I see in industry right now is, we have a lot of this kind of this old school leadership that's still going on where it's like very metrics based, very fear based, very discipline based. And I think it's holding us back. Like, what do you think about that? The, well, I think, you know, it's the old saying too, what gets measured gets done. And so if I go into some organizations and I was doing, I'm uh, thinking about a foundry uh, that I was working with. And as part of that, the technician, the actual, the supervisor was doing leadership uh, and supervisor training. And as part of that, you know, he says, Jeff, the problem is, is we have no, we have no measures. We have no business processes. We have nothing. And therefore I can't hold my people accountable because I can't truly set an expectation for them as part of that too. So I think there's a balance, Rob, when you look at that, you know, how do we, you know, we can't be so metrics driven that we forget the people aspects, you know, because it's truly, and, and just like, you know, you've talked about it already and touched on, you know, is it leadership? Sure. But is it, is it, you know, technology? No, the technology is not going to solve that problem for us. If it was technology, <laughs> we just put robots in and we'd be done with it. It doesn't work that way. It's people, 
you know, at the end of the day, it's all about the, the people component uh, of that. And if you think about the same thing, you know, even when you try to move things forward with regard to, you know, we talk about reliability overall. Well, reliability is an everybody thing. But if the operator is not operating the equipment correctly, you know, there's no maintenance in the world that's going to keep it running, you know, if it wasn't engineered right. But by the same token, how do we get everybody to pitch in and head in the same direction? I think that comes back to the culture and the behaviors and the habits piece as part of that too. I love it. Yeah, and, and it, to me, it actually comes back to something that, that uh, you know, Michelle's been on this show to talk about before, and that's like this motivation piece is, and that's part of how to actually change behavior. Michelle, do you want to just tell us a little bit about intrinsic, extrinsic motivation? Like, where do we take people? Yeah, absolutely. So simply put, extrinsic motivation is motivation that comes from outside of the work that you're doing, whereas intrinsic motivation is coming from the work itself. And uh, if, you, if you're looking for short-term results, extrinsic works really well. You think of those as basically sort of uh, coercing or bribing people to do stuff. And that, that works great for trying new things. That works great for the short term. So if you just need to kind of get over a hump, it's a good way to do it. Uh, if you're trying to introduce something new, that works as well. But if you're trying to create new sort of long-term habits, eventually you just, you have to keep upping the ante. You keep have to increasing the bribe or increasing the punishment. And so the extrinsic motivations eventually stop working. Whereas if you take the other approach and you look at how do we make the work itself motivating, uh, that stays forever because the work stays. And uh, the, I think the reason people don't do it is extrinsic motivations are very simple to do. Um, you go buy ball caps and you have barbecues and all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas intrinsic, you really have to put a lot more thought into it. And, and one of the things that I think, uh, as Jeff mentioned, a lot of times the cultures in these organizations are, are very good. Um, I would say sometimes they're not being taken advantage of. And, and the place I see that when it comes to intrinsic motivation is with craftsmanship. When you talk to most mechanics and a bunch of operators, they have a tremendous pride in craftsmanship. And, and that's something I think you can tap into when you're trying to improve reliability. And that's something I think that, that gets ignored. And, and in fact, those guys sometimes um, kind of get the, the negative reinforcement because they're taking too long to do something because they're trying to do it very, very precisely. So, you know, that's something I think that's already there in most organizations. It's just very underutilized. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't count how many times I've been in organizations where they have extremely talented or extremely great people who are frustrated or disengaged because they're not allowed to do everything that they can do. And as leaders, like, how do we start empowering our people? I think, go ahead, Michelle. You, go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> the, I think one of the challenges is, is, is first recognizing that we have those people to leverage, you know, and we don't think about many times, you know, we talk about change, for example, and, and I always like to ask this question, are people resistant to change? And, and most people say yes, but the reality is, is that's not true. You know, you think about it, how many people buy a house? A lot of people, that's change. How many people get married? Let's change. How many people have children? Let's change. You know, so at the end of the day, it's not that we're, we're opposed to change. We have to understand what's in it, you know, and there's, there's four quadrants to change. There's pluses and minuses of change, and there's pluses and minuses of not making the change as well. You know, so the challenge gets to be, and I'm reminded of this just, just recently at a site, 
you know, what they're doing is, is they're, they're not getting the buy-in. And when you talk about how do we engage those people and how do we get them to move forward on the internal side, you know, and make the work interesting is we don't involve them in the change process. You know, pretty much it's pushed down from corporate, thou shalt do this, you know, and then they're like, like okay, well, guess what? Not in my backyard. Uh, it wasn't invented here. Sorry, it was not going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, whether, and, and it's all in how it's presented and how we engage people to be part of the change, you know. So, go ahead, Michelle, if you'd like to add to that. Yeah, I, I would just go back to that and engaging them in the change. And, and I think sometimes the um, mistake is made of, well, yeah, you know, I, I gave them an assignment, therefore they're engaged. And it's more getting them involved in, in the process of creating what is it that we're going to do. And then they have that, that ownership versus just executing what you've already decided they should do. And I think the reason that that doesn't get done very often is it means giving up some control. And uh, me personally being a serious control freak, it's something I have a lot of trouble with. That I, will, I have a vision of how I want it done, and I want it done exactly that way. And you know, what I've had to learn is if I want other people to be committed to it, committed to it as much as I am, I need to give them a voice in designing the process and, and how we're gonna execute it. And maybe it's not perfect, maybe it's not my way, but if other people are doing it, it's more than just me out there being the Lone Ranger, that, that's a better end result than if it's just me doing it my way. And I think it's more sustainable too, right? Like I know uh, a lot of us were, I don't want to say perfectionist, but some of us are. And so we have these visions that are very tight and, you know, we go, we've taken all the courses we know best. Right. And it's like, that's a good approach if you're an individual contributor, but if you're a leader, which we all are, it's really about empowering your people to be their best. And I think that's the, that's the kind of the conversation that I want to have is, everybody on this call and everybody who's listening to this recording, you're a leader, whether you have direct reports or not, whether you sit in the corporate corner office and you drive the car and you have the parking space, it doesn't matter. You are a leader because you can go into work. And even if you're the lowest level, whatever engineer, EIT, uh, craftsman, co-op student, if you're, if you're real into it, you can affect change in your own little world. And, you know, that's really the message that I want people to get from this. Yep. So uh, we got a question here that came in and this one came in and, and it's kind of what I was talking about. Basically it said, is it possible for one person who's not up in the company to change the culture of a company? If so, are there any specific examples? Michelle, do you want to kick us off with this one? Yeah, so you know, I think of, of culture as actually being a combination of a bunch of subcultures. And so I think every individual has the ability to impact the subculture that they're within. So it might be just their unit at the site. It might be just their shift. It might be as small as just their personal behaviors and, and activities. And you know, what I see, when I've seen successful organizational change, what I see is a lot of individuals making very small changes. And the combination of that is what changes the organization. I have to say, personally, I haven't been a part of a big organizational change that was mandated from the top down, you know, thou shalt do this, and, and then it all kind of fell into place. It's always kind of bubbled up from the, 
from the bottom of the organization where people start doing their daily activities differently. And the combination of all of those small things ultimately changes the way the organization functions as a whole. Absolutely. Jeff, how about you? What do you think? So I think part of that too is, is how do you, how do you establish a vision? You know, and while we use the term vision and mission and, and everybody, you know, hates those words literally in some ways, but you know, how do you set that? And, and then as part of that, how do you educate people in the vision? And I'm reminded of, of companies that we've been very successful with. And, and, and one in particular, the executive told me, he said, you know, Jeff, uh, we had come in, we've done an assessment and we pointed out, said, you know, you've got a lot of opportunities. Part of it is maintenance, but it was operations, it was quality, it was logistics, it was everything. It's part of it. And he says, well, that's great, but I want you to fix maintenance. And I said, okay, well, we're in trouble. But anyway, then he says, then he goes on to say, oh, by the way, I don't want you to teach any of that theory stuff. You know, I just want you to fix it, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, well, guess what? You're not going to be successful because you're not showing people how you need to do this as part of that conversation, you know, and, and what is your vision? What do you want to see? And then how do you get people to buy in? And we've talked about the buy-in in piece, but again, you know, how do you, how do you set up that education? And it's not about, you know, we get, we get wrapped around the best practices. What are the best practices? But in the end, how do you take this stuff and you make it your own, you know, and, and how do you create those subcultures? I mean, use those informal leaders, you know, that, that are using the, not positional power, but, you know, just the fact that Sally's a great technician, you know, and she's well-respected. And so as part of that, you know, people listen to her. So how do you get Sally on board, you know, and how do you get, you know, Rob on board and how do you get Mike on board, you know, and how do you get these people? And it comes back to, you know, even thinking about going back into, you know, uh, the small action teams as part of that too, you know, how do you take and, and, and engage these people? So how do you create these small groups? And some people call them DPIs, but, you know, how do you create this call continuous improvement groups and you empower them as you talked about before to actually go and, and bring forth that change, you know, and I'm reminded that a, uh, we did as, as part of another uh, a group with an assessment type thing and, and doing the implementation, we went and we basically created these small teams like that, not quite the small as, you know, the two to three type person action team, but a little bigger. And we empowered them to develop the solutions and come up with the right answers. And then they went and taught it to them, to their people. And as part of it, it was really great because we sat with the, uh, the executive, one of the VPs came down actually out of Canada to, to the site and, uh, sat down and was and said, okay, you know, show me what you've done. And, and he was, the team was sharing that. And they said, oh, and he stops him. He says, well, what you're trying to say is people and processes did this. And they said, no, no, no. People and processes didn't do this. We did it. People and processes taught us how to do it. And then we taught it and we took it and we ran with it and we taught our people. And it comes back to the same things. You know, again, how do you create those, those people in the, down at the lowest levels and empower them to, to, to accomplish what you're trying to achieve? But what yeah. is your strategy? That's where the challenge you got to have a strategy. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I love it. And, and actually it's funny cause I, I've done, I just was, I just finished doing a, a continuous improvement coaching thing with Calvin Williams. And I, I think the approach is perfect for what we try to do is reliability. And it's those creating those small teams and having them go out and do PDCA and having them, you know, innovate and, and use and experiment with their own problems. And I think it's like, it's something that we need to talk about more in reliability because we, we like to have these big, big rooms of 50 people and do these RCMs that take five years. And, and I think we lose a lot with that. 
Well, and those are necessary, you know, depending on the, the circumstances, right? For big, hairy, expensive problems, that's the right way to go. But for every one big, hairy problem, there are hundreds of little ones that that just doesn't make any sense to do it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have those small teams working on the smaller projects, that means you get to involve more people. Um, but I would say, and both of you have, have kind of hit on this, it's about those teams going out and actually making an improvement not coming up with ideas, not coming up with suggestions, not giving you their laundry list of things they wish somebody else would do differently. It's them taking on the responsibility with their team to we're going to go make this better. And if we need help, if we need money, whatever it is, you know, there, there are resources we can go to. But the important part is that the people on the team who are coming up with the ideas are also the people executing those ideas, taking it full circle. So I'll mention two things out of that. And the first one is what you really talked about is how do we coach, you know, success? So you talked about that, you know, how do you take those small teams and coach them to be successful at the same time? And so I'm going to pick on RCM. It happens. I'm an RCM practitioner. See, so I can share this as part of that. And the challenge is not necessarily going out and doing all these analysis. It comes back to what you said, Michelle, how do we actually implement things? And we were, we started out working with a company and we were working with the corporate level, you know, and what happened was they, we would teach people how to do the analysis and how to facilitate that. And they would do it in smaller groups, not 50 people, but, you know, maybe five people or whatever the case may be. But what would happen is, is the corporate organization was actually measuring on a number of analysis completed, not the number of implementations that happened. You know, so it was, okay, how can we do all these analysis? And we said, well, time out, you know, we don't need to do that. You know, we need to implement some stuff and get some business results. But here's what I was going to say around RCM. I'm not advocating that you do RCM, but I am advocating that you understand the concepts of RCM. So that when you go in and you say, okay, now let's go improve this piece of equipment. You know, what are the, some of the strategies that I can use to do that? You know, and what's my framework that I'm going to work from to do it? Not that I have to do an analysis. No, you know, but what I always want to choose condition monitoring first, you know, then I'm going to go to time-based, then I'm going to do failure finding as part of it. Those are kind of things that you need to be educated. Not that you do RCM, even PM optimization for crying out loud, you still got to know the failure modes yeah. to be able to do that. So key pieces, you know, so training and coaching are, are really vital, you know, and the other thing I was going to mention as part of, and it's something you mentioned too, Rob, is the leadership aspect. You can't manage from behind a desk. And if you're trying to drive change and especially culture change, you have to spend your time on the floor and you have to be out there. And when I was an operations manager, I would go out every week. I mean, every day I started, you know, today I would go out this door and I would go out in the floor and, and I talked to people, you know, and, and in some cases, you know, we were in a union facility, so I could pick up a broom and sweep if I needed to, you know, and people say, well, Jeff, you can't be doing that. You're an operations manager, for goodness sake. And I said, okay, but you know how to run the machine. I don't. You know, and you got, you got Snickers bars falling all over the machine and hitting the floor. And once they hit the floor, we can't do anything with them. So we're going to sweep them up, you know, get them out of your way. So that way you can get the machine lined out. And, you know, that went a long way. But it happens that, you know, the next day I've got a different door. And the, the point here was that, you know, you're visible and you have, you're able to have those one-on-one conversations that drive where you're trying to go. And you can build out that engagement. It comes back to as well when we talk about delegating, you know, and it's something you hit on Michelle, you know, the perfection and you want to do it yourself and it's easier just to do it yourself and get somebody else to do it. It takes less time and all this other kind of stuff. But the reality is what happens when Michelle doesn't come back one day when Michelle wants to retire, you know, what are we going to do? 
you know, so how do we cross train? We have to force ourselves to do it because I'm the same way, you know, and, and Tammy's the same way. We talk about Tammy, you know, she's like, oh, I just do it quicker myself. But the problem is, is what happens when there's no Tammy, you know? No, I, I love it. And it's funny, Jeff, because, you know, the most, some of the people who came on this show and they work at some of the successful plants, like they've all done the same thing about going out to shop floor. Like even Steve on this call, like he's worked extensively with the maintenance folks at his sites. And it's just one of those things, like it's about engaging your people and it's about learning what actually is happening. And then there's also that, that to me, there's that trust aspect as well, which it's, it's hard as, as someone who, you know, works with, with people high in the company, it's like, how do you, how can you trust them if they don't actually know what's going on on the shop floor? And I'm sure we've all seen it and I've seen it is we know the CEO is going to come out on the plant. So we clean up the, the route he's going to go on. <laughs> so then he only sees what's great. And it's like, how does, how is, how are you ex- expecting him to make great decisions yeah. if we never show what, what the truth is? Yeah. One that, you know, it's one of the things we've seen with our workshops where a lot of times we get organizations that want to bring through, bring people through the workshop kind of hierarchically. So they want to start with the senior leadership and then work their way down. And we always push back on that saying, what's really important is having a little bit of everybody in the room, because a, a lot of what you're trying to do, I mean, yes, there's sort of the technical pieces of it and our stuff isn't even that technical, but a lot of it is building those relationships and building the trust and having the mechanics sitting across from the plant manager realizing that you know what we both want the same things that we see it from different perspectives and we have different uh, challenges and hurdles that that we have to overcome but in the end we both want the same things which is you know for this facility to run well and he may want it for different reasons than i do but we both want the same thing and so the next time he tells me to do something um, that i think is stupid maybe i'll say you know what he's, he's not a stupid man <laughs> and he pro- there's probably a good reason for it and, and so let me think about it but if you don't have that relationship and that trust then you just kind of assume that other people are making ridiculous decisions because that's not the way that that you would act in that situation um, so i think you know it's important from different levels in the organization but also across different departments that the operators and the mechanics need to trust each other they need to trust the people in purchasing they need to trust the hr folks and if you don't ever have I'm a chance to interact HR. with those people, <laughs> you don't ever have a, a chance to interact with those people on a, a, you know, other than an emergency basis, very difficult to have those, those sorts of trust relationships. I love it. Yeah. And, and I was actually on a, a webinar the other day about, well, we were talking about mental health, but the guy who was on the webinar, he's a psychologist out of Australia, Clive Lloyd. And he works primarily in psychological safety. And one of his top tips was he has all levels of the organization basically introduce themselves for who they are. And he said, like, this is the first step to building trust is then you actually know the guy, you know, he has kids, you know, he's a wife, you know what he likes to do on a weekend, like those types of things. They're very humanistic and it's very, you know, personal, but yet it, then you understand, like, instead of you going, well, this guy's, he doesn't understand what's going on in our plan. He's an idiot. You at least sort of relate to him maybe more as a human. It's, it's real interesting. I thought it was a great tip. Yeah. yeah absolutely. No, I- and particularly where you get a chance to, to work together. Cause that was the other thing that, you know, my dad experienced at DuPont is they kind of had that, 
that revelation, they said, okay, well, let's go do all these, you know, ropes courses together and all these others were to offsite non-work things to build up teamwork. And so they became very cohesive as a team doing extracurricular activities. But when they got back into work, it was the same old mess. That reminds <laughs> me of that. What is the coyote and the, I can't remember the sheepdog that would punch in, fight like crazy and punch out and they were best friends. That's kind of how it was at the site. And so at that point they realized it was really important not just to have uh, opportunities to get to know each other personally away from work, but have chances to actually work together and, and accomplish work together. That was important too. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and to your point, you know, that's really key. Again, you know, how do you get out from behind the desk? And I'm reminded of one site and we were working and the V then I was actually at another site later on and the VP came up to me and said, Jeff, I remember he was the plant manager at the time when I was at that particular site. And he said, you know, I'll always remember you taking the technical director out and you actually introducing him to a maintenance technician and say, Hey John, this person works for you. Have you ever met Fred? You know, and, and he looked at me like I was crazy, but it was true, you know, because this guy, he never went on the floor as part of that, you know, and, and it was just so clear. And it's to your point, you know, how do you get out and how do you break it down? And, and I'm reminded as well, when I first started, you know, in an industrial plant, I was actually in the lunch line in, in, in the cafeteria. It was a big enough plant that had a cafeteria. And back when they used to do all those great things, you know, now everything's a vendetteria kind of stuff. But anyway, and uh, I was, uh, somebody was pushing me from behind and the plant manager was up in front and his administrative assistant was right beside him. And, you know, a few people back, you know, from that. And, and I was further back and she overheard him say something to me about, you know, well, you're going to sit down with Wendell and have lunch with him, you know? And I said, oh, no, 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 I, I couldn't do that, you know, because I'm the low man on the totem pole. And I truly was at the time. And, and she overheard that. She looked at me and she said, you know, Jeff, she said, he buttons his shirt the same way you do. He puts on his pants the same way you do. And actually from that conversation, later on, we became, the plant manager and I became the best of friends. But we have to figure out how to break down those walls. And it comes back to even, you know, that cliche, the elevator speech, you know, as part of that. If you're trapped in the elevator, what are you going to say? You know, and how are you going to have those conversations and break down those walls? You know, and, but it, it takes the leadership being willing to get out on the floor as part of that. Because people will share, you know, and, and the challenge, too, is, is not to be defensive, but to go out and listen to people and understand what the issues are. And, you know, it's kind of, I'm reminded of another thing where you stack people up against the telephone pole, you know, and the person at the top obviously has the best view. And it's how do we get the the message down to the person at the lowest level, you know, and we've got to be able to have those conversations and, and, you know, people to your point, Michelle, they see different perspectives with regard to that, but in the end still, how do we get product out the door? You know, what are we trying to accomplish and are we headed in the same direction? Yeah, I just wanted to step back a little bit, Jeff, and talk about vision. And it's something that, you know, we see a lot. And, and Michelle, like in terms of intrinsic motivation, it's, it's a, one of the, or can be a key driver. And it's something where, you know, like well, sometimes some companies take visions like, hey, we want to have zero safety incidents or, you know, we want to push out 50% more product. Stuff like that is very, you know, inhuman type and it won't contribute to intrinsic motivation but there's some out there like um they're talking about like i think at the company i work for right now they're saying like we we provide energy so then your grandmother can heat her home or something like that it's very humanistic and driving that intrinsic motivation like where where should people start with a vision 
let, let me talk a little bit about the extrinsic motivation. So there are three of them. I call them the three E's so I can remember them. So there's <laughs> economic pressure, there's emotional pressure, and the third one is inertia, which doesn't begin with an E, but there's an E in there, so it counts. And the strongest one is inertia, that basically you're doing what you're doing because that's what you always did and, and you never give it a second thought. And that's not part of the, the process. And it, that's incredibly strong. And so I think the first thing, if you want to change, the first thing you have to do is break inertia. And the way that you do that effectively is by inspiring people. And so you have to give them some sort of a vision of why is the way we're doing it today not good enough. Because um, if it's just, you know, hey, let's squeeze a little bit more out, people are not motivated by that. <laughs> and so a, a great example that I, I uh, heard several years ago was the plant manager at a public utility in a state that in two years was going to deregulate. And so this guy put up a chart and had, it was a, a bar chart with two bars. One bar was, here's what it cost us to make a kilowatt of electricity. And the second bar, which was much smaller, was here's what it cost the cogen unit down the street to make a kilowatt of electricity. He said, when we hit deregulation, who do you think the customer's going to buy from? Your customers. Who are you going to buy from? The expensive stuff or the less expensive stuff? And so we said, we have two years to get this figured out or we're not going to be able to continue. And he said, I, I, I can't do it by myself. I need each and every one of you to help find all the inefficiencies that we can find and, and get rid of the defects and improve how we're performing um, so that we can compete with the guys down the road. And that was just incredibly motivational to people because they, they understood kind of why is this important? We've been, we've been chugging along for 50, 60, 70 years. Everything's been fine. Why is it no longer good enough? And I think you have to share that information. And, and sometimes it's a threat like that. You know, if we don't get better, we're, we're not going to continue to exist. But a lot of times it's opportunities. You know, if we could improve this way, there's some contracts we could go after, or there's some expansion projects that we could qualify for. But there needs to be some sort of a compelling reason to change. And I think that that's where you have to start. Mm -hmm. Yep. And as part of that, you know, that, that vision, you know, that, that there's two bars gave people something to rally around and it was attainable. I mean, they could see it, you know, to the point, you know, you're a customer, you, and what we see so many times in, in the vision statements and plants and other things is, well, we'll take the corporate vision statement, but the average person to your point, Rob, you know, the average person, you're right. The average person can't relate to that and say, well, how do I impact that? I can't, you know, maybe as 14 plants, we can impact that, but not me as an individual. I can't impact that. And so how does it make it, you know, when we talk about vision statements, that vision has to be relatable, you know, and to your point, you know, how do we get it to where I know I can impact that and, and I can go and then I'm motivated to do something different. Otherwise it's just, uh, okay, well, that's just this blah, 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 blah stuff. <laughs> we see a lot of blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. You know, it really is. And then when you try to go in, when you try to go into those companies and you say, okay, let's put together a vision statement that you can impact within this plant. And that's something I always encourage the plants to do and even the departments to do. You know, how do you create something that people can relate to that builds up to this next level of vision, that builds up to the next level of vision, you know, as part of that. And they're like, well, we'll just use the corporate one. And I'm like, okay, but that's not relatable to the person on the floor. And, and it, it doesn't always have to be grand either. George Mahoney will talk about this next week, I'm sure, Rob. But part of, of what he talked about with uh, the guys that he worked with was it was about having a better day at work. 
And so he said, you know, wh what are the things that you just, just drive you nuts when you come in? What's your sort of worst day? And what is it that we can do without a lot of approval from corporate or any of that? What can we do to just make for a better day at work? And that's something that resonated really well with them. And of course, that translates into, hey, if we have a better day at work, um, that's better for the company too. Yeah. And I can add, yeah, go ahead, Joe. I was going to add something to that. When I, when I was a practitioner, we went out and they started across the corporation doing the Gallup Q12 survey, you know, to measure engagement. And you have the 12 questions and you have first break all the, you know, out of that really came the book, first break all the rules. And if you've never read a, a good book around managing people, first break all the rules is a fantastic book to learn how to do it. And it's based on, you know, all these studies, uh, surveys and things from, from Gallup. But as part of that, what they did is, you know, at the time, corp the corporate organization was taking away the benefits, cutting medical, you know, doing all these other things. And so the, t the people were trying to use that as a venting tool to say, okay, you know, here's why we're all upset with this because the engagement scores are really lousy and things. But the answer to that was, is okay, how can we, and just exactly what you were saying is how can we, we, we would put together basically meetings. And as part of that, what were the things that we could do within the plant to change that within our span of control and within our power, maybe it didn't take a lot of money. And, you know, that really turned things around in that organization. It still didn't eliminate the venting toward the corporation with regards to the retirement benefits, medical benefits, other things like that. But within the plant, it became very different because again, we're talking about how do we make it better? And, and I'm always amazed because I've had a number of conversations just in the last couple of months and we, we talk about communication and communication is really bad between, you know, within the site and you hear that all the time and you ask a simple question. Well, even on the shift overlap meetings, do you have a shift overlap meeting where you put maintenance and operations in the same room and you have a conversation and they're like, no, we don't do that. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you expect? You know, what do you expect? You don't have the opportunity to communicate, you know, and some people don't even build that time into the schedule. And that's really a key piece is, again, how do we break down the walls? How do we empower people? How do we get them talking and working together? And, you know, and again, at the lowest levels is part of that. Yeah, communication is so huge. And yet it's something that I think most of us could do more of. Like, I think you go to work and you have your team of five or six, five or six people that you talk to. And then the rest of the organization, you're like, eh, whenever I get to it. Yeah, yeah. So last question before we get into some plugs I wanted to get into is, you know, we talk, you know, about this culture change as being a long-term thing. Like Jeff, you were mentioning three to five years. I've heard every, anywhere up to 10 years, to be honest, in some of the, some of the things. But if you were dropped into a site and just a new site and someone said to you, you know, hey, we want to take this organization from reactive mode to world-class reliability, like where would you start? Like what are some of the quick wins that we can start? So if we think about that is first off, you know, pick a pilot area. It's one of the things that I would say is pick a pilot area. Don't try to, you know, and don't pick the worst area. You know, you always see people, and I had this, this very conversation just yesterday, matter of fact, with a site that's trying to get into maintenance planning and scheduling. Believe it or not, many sites out there still don't do the basic planning and scheduling, you know, go figure. And so as part of that, they're, they're, 
They're like, well, hey, we're trying to get this goal on and stuff like this. And I'm like, okay, but you picked the very worst plant you possibly could have picked to try to get it going. And then when you, you the VP is not satisfied with the results. And so he's not willing to fund the head count. And so, but they're, they're coming up with alternate arrangements to be able to, you know, to convert a technician over that role or whatever the case may be. But, you know, they're not getting the management support, but part of it is because when they pick a pilot, they pick one of the very, very worst places to do it. Then the other, another one is, is just transparency. You know, if you can, and it comes back to the communication, not only are we under communicating by a factor of 10 to a hundred times, but we're also not transparent when we communicate, you know, and it comes back to having the one-on-one conversations of being on the plant floor, being able to do that, you know? And so, and then I would also focus on where do you have those informal leaders? How can you leverage those informal leaders and get them to buy in to what you're trying to accomplish by showing them really all four quadrants of change? They're not, you know, here's not just the positive of what if you go after this, you know, this is what you're going to get. It also means these other things too to help them transition. So there's three pieces right there. There's a way that I would focus, you know, on that. But and I'll have one other one too, and and it's really having to find roles and responsibilities from a business process standpoint. And most organizations haven't done that. And I see duplication all the time, you know, in every site, literally around that. And my job too. Michelle, what do you think? <laughs> I, I would go back to, to what Jeff said early on, these action teams, so small cross-functional teams who are gonna go out and get rid of a problem together. Uh, preferably getting at the the underlying causes, so not just doing a Band-Aid approach, and things that take less than 5,000 bucks, less than 90 days, and get out there and do it a lot, and then mix and match. So you're going to have these cross-functional teams. You don't want the same five people together all the time. It ought to to vary based on who are the the right experts. Um, Getting out there and and getting some results and, and getting people to um, actually accomplish something uh, that that starts the momentum. You've got to get the ball rolling, and and uh, that the best that's the best way to do it, and, and involve as many people as you possibly can. And then communicate the results. You know, absolutely. That that's that's that has to happen. Publish those small wins to build in more wins. And, and you know, where are the where are the uh, the activity boards, you know, on the way to the vendetary, to the lunchroom or whatever that talks about all these great things that people are doing to buy in, you know, and, and it's not just people say, okay, well, let's just, we'll put it up a few PowerPoint slides up on the TV monitor. Okay. Well, that's, that's really nice. Thanks. You know, that's really not talking about and driving the point home. Well, and, and with communicating good news, I think it's human nature. We gravitate towards the negative. I think it's part of this sort of natural fight or flight type reaction. And so, you know, if something bad happens on the site, everybody knows about it within an hour, right? Including the guy that retired eight years ago. But if something good happens, a lot of times people don't know. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've talked about, you know, a, a, an action team project that was wildly successful. And people say, well, you can't do that here. And I say, yeah, that example is from here. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all did that six months ago. Um, so I think if, with those successes, you have to be over communicating with them. And, and that's where I think senior leadership can really uh, do a lot because they, if they're talking about it, then, then people are listening. If they're talking about, hey, there was this great thing that happened, um, that's going to bring some attention to it. And I would say the other thing with communication is make sure you're communicating the why as well as the what and the how. And I think that's where yep. all of us could probably, you know, it's just, you're, you just want to get it done, right? You just want to hurry. Here's what I want you to do. Go. 
And if you take that extra 10 minutes to say, here's why, um, first of all, you're going to get better buy-in. Second of all, a lot of times you get better ideas because the person you're talking to says, well, if that's what you're trying to accomplish, here's another way to do it, or I, I better make sure and do this as well. Um, and so, you know, you get, you get better results when you take that extra time to, to communicate the why. And I think uh, I'll add this to that, Michelle. I think as a manager, as a supervisor, we forget when we're trying to implement change like this, you know, whether just behaviors are change or whatever the case may be, is, you know, part of our job becomes marketing. We really have to sell all of this. And, and they're like, okay, well, that's not my role. Well, no, it is your role. It's part of that. And when I was a practitioner and, and as a maintenance manager and we're going through the change within the plan I was in, you know, we returned a lot of, a lot of benefits relatively quickly, you know, 18 months, you know, we, we gave back 20 million capacity produced waste and scrap by 10 million, took 2 million off the maintenance budget. But what would happen is, is every day I would go into every week, I would go into the staff meeting and the industrial engineer that was there, she says, she would say, Oh, Jeff, we're not going to hear about maintenance again today. Are we? Well, sure we are. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, because it was not just communicating at the lowest levels, it was communicating at upper levels and, and the message was consistent across the board. And here's the transparency piece. So by the way, things didn't work out as well as we wanted, but we learned from it, you know, and this is how we're going to do things differently going forward. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And it's something that I think as an industry, we need to work on is communication and internal marketing, like not, not external, but just internal to our own, both up and down in the organization. So last question, we got plugs. So, Jeff, you're filling up the screen. What do you have to plug for us? Well, you know, I would say that communication is key. The business processes are key. All these things relative to that with the plug, you know, we've got a couple, we're part of the University of Tennessee. We partner with them. We've got uh, uh, a number of planning and scheduling classes coming up. We've got a stockroom class coming up around, you know, maintenance stockroom, managing that well. And those are some of the key pieces coming up in the next year, really, literally, you know, the next month, month and a half for us. It's part of that. So very big on that. Perfect. So you can check that out at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, or peopleandprocesses.com. Or reach out to Tammy. That's right. Or reach out to Tammy. <laughs> reach out to Tammy Pickett. <laughs> Michelle, how about you? What do you have to plug? Let's see. We've got our website, so manufacturinggame.com. There's a lot of information there. We also have the book, Don't Just Fix It, Improve It, which is available on Amazon. Um, it tells the story of a plant manager that was inspired to improve reliability at a site based on an injury that happened. So it was one of the sort of negative inspirations, but it, it goes through in story form through the, the journey and kind of shows all of the, the bumps and bruises and rocks along the way that they have to deal with and trying to, to get the improvement done. So it, it fits, I think, well with what we've talked about today is a lot of times the barriers aren't the technical issues, but it, it's the people issues. And so it, it talks a lot about that. Um, the other thing, we are supposed to be going to SMRP in October. We'll see if that happens <laughs> live or if that converts to virtual. Uh, I have my doubts. And uh, lastly, next week, Rob, well, I'll be back on with George Mahoney. And uh, George has done a fantastic job of implementing defect elimination. So if anybody is interested in sort of the nuts and bolts and and uh, all of the, the ups and the downs of getting it done, George is is a fantastic speaker and his experience is, is really good. Um, you know, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't the perfect smooth 
corporate told him, you know, gave him the blessing to do it. He had to sort of fight and scrap to get it done. So if anybody's looking at how do I get it done without having the official blessing from above, uh, George is a great source for that. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. And yeah, it's, it's, it's the same time next week. So it'll be 2 p.m. Eastern Wednesday again. Um, if you're on this one, you should be on the next one or you should have got the invite for the next one as well. But if not, I'll send an email in the next few days. So check that one out. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, uh, thanks, Rob, and good, good seeing you, Jeff. <laughs> Tell yeah, Tampa same here. Maybe SMRP. You know? Maybe. <laughs> if, if not, we'll be online again. Don't worry yeah, about it. Absolutely. Great.